This is episode number 575 with Dr. Magnus Ekman, Director of Architecture at NVIDIA. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. You're in for a treat with the deeply intelligent Dr. Magnus Ekman on the show today. Magnus is a director of architecture at NVIDIA, one of the world's largest microchip designers and the most important microchip designer for AI. Thanks to exponential growth in recent years that has been fueled in no small part by the explosive demand for training AI models, NVIDIA today employs over 22,000 people and they enjoyed $10 billion of net income in their most recent financial year. That's double their income of the previous year. In addition to Magnus's nearly 12 years of experience at NVIDIA, uh, he's also worked at Samsung and Sun Microsystems. Alongside all of that rich experience, Magnus is also the author of the epic, recently released 700-page book, Learning Deep Learning. The book blends theory, math, and code to introduce deep learning and a broad range of deep learning's applications across machine vision and natural language processing. He holds a PhD in computer engineering from the Chalmers University of Technology in Sweden and a master's in economics from Göteborg University, also in Sweden. Today's episode has technical elements here and there, but should largely be interesting to anyone who's interested in hearing the latest trends in AI, particularly deep learning, software, and hardware. In the episode, Magnus details what hardware architects do, how machine learning, including deep learning, can be used to optimize the design of computer hardware, the pedagogical approach of his exceptional deep learning book, which machine learning users need to understand how machine learning models work and which users don't. He talks about algorithms inspired by biological evolution. He talks about how artificial general intelligence won't be obtained by increasing model parameters alone. And he talks about whether transformer models will entirely displace other deep learning architectures such as CNNs and RNNs. All right, you ready for this information-rich episode? Let's go. Magnus, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Where in the world are you calling in from? Hi, John. I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area. And thanks for having nice. me here on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, the Bay Area is a popular choice <laughs> for our guests to be from. <laughs> I bet. Um, yeah. yeah, and you have um, the NVIDIA headquarters, I guess, is nearby. Yeah, it's in Santa Clara, so it's in the in the heart of Silicon Valley. Yeah. Nice. So we know each other two ways. We were introduced by Deborah Williams, who is an acquisitions editor at the world's biggest um, educational publisher, Pearson. And so we both published books. Um, for them on their Addison Wesley imprint. And I'd wanted to have you on the show because there's a lot of commonality between your book and my book, but we also tackle different things. And so I loved the way that you approached your book. I wanted to meet you and Deborah kindly made that introduction. But we're also connected via Anima Anandkumar, who was in episode number 473. So she's at NVIDIA and we had an amazing episode with her last year 
can definitely recommend if if you're a listener that likes deep technical deep dives, <laughs> then that episode was an amazing one. And yeah, and so she actually wrote the foreword for your book that Deborah then published, right? That's right. Yeah, I asked Anima if she could do that, and she graciously uh, accepted doing that. So that was really nice of her. You know, she seems like a very nice person, though I, I suspect it's one of those things where she's such an in-demand person. <laughs> yeah, she's <laughs> and, busy. But she's also yeah. very nice. And yeah. so she's she's probably like, uh, yeah, probably like like many of the great guests we've had on the show where like, their life is like this constant nightmare because everyone's asking them for things and they always want to say yes. Right. And so, well, we're very grateful for Anima both for being on the show and for doing the forward for your book. Yep. <laughs> nice. So at NVIDIA, alongside Anima, you are a director of architecture. So that sounds like an interesting role. You've been doing it for a while. You've been there since 2014, so nearly eight years. And you had a previous stint there for four years as well. So. Um, yeah, tell us about what it's like, uh, how things have changed at NVIDIA uh, over all those years. Sure. Uh, so before I begin here, I should just state that these are my own opinions and does not reflect any official views of NVIDIA. Uh, nice. Yeah, <laughs> things have changed. Uh, when I joined, yeah, I joined in 2009 the first time. And uh, uh, at that point, it was still just a graphics company, you know, not quite just a graphics company. It was CUDA was out there and uh, they were uh, pushed into both the HPC market and the mobile market, but uh, deep learning wasn't really around at that point, right? Right. Uh, yeah, it was 2012 that the AlexNet architecture, the machine vision architecture out of the University of Toronto that brought kind of deep learning as this incredible, powerful technique um, one of the big innovations in that was programming NVIDIA GPUs. Uh, so using the CUDA programming language that NVIDIA GPUs uh, take advantage of. I don't know what verb to use there. You could yeah. probably do a much better job than me. But it was uh, one of the problems that people training deep learning algorithms have is that you often, especially for training your model from scratch, you typically need a lot of training data. And so that AlexNet architecture benefited from this very, very large uh, data set called the ImageNet training data set. But then you run into this problem of how are we going to train the model on any reasonable time span with all of these images and with our relatively large architecture with all of these model parameters. And so Alex Krzyzewski and Ilya Sutzgaver and Jeff Hinton uh, for that 2012 AlexNet architecture had the idea to program NVIDIA GPUs in CUDA to be able to do this uh, image processing efficiently, this model training efficiently. And so um, although in 2009, when you first joined NVIDIA, NVIDIA yeah, wasn't, I guess, involved in deep learning, but uh, from 2012, it's been a really important part of what NVIDIA can do as a company, can provide to the world. Yeah, it has. But even in 2012, I think there was a very small number of people uh, in NVIDIA realizing this or even knowing that uh, deep learning was coming, right? I sure. mean, overall, the AlexNet All paper... Us. Yeah, AlexNet <laughs> paper kicked it off, or, well, depending on how you put it, right? There, there were some publications before that, even with uh, using GPUs. But 
uh, as you said before, I left NVIDIA and came back in 2014. And when I came back in 2014, I still wasn't aware of uh, that this was becoming a big deal. I had started looking a little bit at deep learning, just reading about it because I was interested in it. Uh, but I had not internalized how big part of NVIDIA of of it that NVIDIA would be, or and I think mm-hmm. would be because I don't think it was at the, that point. It was still a pretty small part of it. Uh, I, I think it was in 2015, 2016 that we started seeing really uh, things happening, and we also uh, started selling systems that were dedicated for this with the DGX machines uh, that are basically built to do deep learning. Um, and, and then it has just exploded ever since, I guess. Well, yeah, so prior to that, as you said, primarily these GPUs were being used for graphics. So for rendering video game graphics or for editing graphics, anytime that you needed uh, to be able to have a lot of graphics processing happening. And I'm sure I've said this on the, on the show before, but um, in order to render graphics efficiently, you need lots of parallel computing of relatively simple linear algebra operations. Yep. And as it happens, that's exactly what you also need <laughs> to train a deep learning algorithm. So pretty yep. cool that, uh, yeah, you never know where things are going to end up. That uh, yeah, for years of NVIDIA history, everybody probably in leadership was thinking about, yeah, graphics or you know, maybe some other applications like mobile or something. Uh, but then out of nowhere, it turns out that the AI systems of the future are going to depend enormously on GPUs and by an enormous margin, it's NVIDIA GPUs that are doing that, um, relative to any other kind of uh, manufacturer. So super cool. That no, I, and- <laughs> I should make it clear though, that, uh, I, I'm actually not working on GPUs. I'm not on the GPU side of NVIDIA. Yes. So, yes. Uh, yeah, maybe yeah. we're getting to that. Yeah. Well, yeah, and so that's, yeah, but I think it's just in terms of context of, yeah, NVIDIA as a company. But yeah, so yeah. while NVIDIA is renowned for its GPUs, uh, you are an architect working specifically on CPU architecture. And so maybe right. you can tell us a bit about what an architecture, an architecture director does, um, as well as, you know, specifically a CPU architect. Sure. So... Yeah, the architecture we're referring to here is the computer architecture, the the internal architecture of the processors that we're building. And so in general, a uh, a computer architect would be working on either CPUs, GPUs, signal processors, network processors, any processing. And how do we build these machines to uh, provide really high performance or uh, low power or high performance given a particular power envelope, for example. Uh, so it's uh, making the trade-offs between how much processing power, number of execution units, uh, how much cache memory, how many levels or caches, those kind of questions. So, so that's kind of where you're uh, making the overall architecture of this processor that you're then later going to implement in silicon. Uh, and so most people that we have on the show, their primary role is in software. And even right. if we have someone on the show who has tit- the title architect, they're usually a software architect. So they are right. concerned with how to architect how the database will call information and how information will flow within the software system. But you're a hardware architect. Correct. Yeah. It is like 
physically how the information is going to flow and how much power it's going to take as it moves through a CPU. That's cool. In the end, it's going to be physical, but if you think about it, all of the design work leading up to making it is really software, right? You're, today, you're specifying so you, the hardware so in, <laughs> in software. We're writing simulators, actually in uh, high-level languages like C and C++, C++ uh, to model how this processor is going to become when we build it and try to make the right trade-offs. And then in the end, we ship it off to the fab to actually, to actually implement it. So, so there's a lot of overlap between software and hardware. Yeah. Uh, so you're not just sitting around soldering all day. <laughs> I don't. I, I used to do that as, as a hobby when I grew up, but uh, I, I never do that anymore, actually. That's really cool. Um, I guess I hadn't, like, now that you say it, it seems like really obvious and I'll probably remember it forever. But yeah. I, I had never kind of made that connection that even with today's computer systems and how complex and how small everything is, you can't really be physically creating a hardware system. You need to design that with simulations and software in the first place anyway. Right. Yeah. Really cool. So then what's the relationship? We're going to talk about your deep learning book shortly. We're going to talk about it for a while. Mm -hmm. What's the relationship between your work as a hardware architect and machine learning, deep learning, AI? What's the connection there? Uh, I think there are a lot of connections. Uh, they might not be obvious, and uh, I think I think we're going to see much more of this becoming more obvious uh, in the future. Uh, like if I'm looking at uh, what's being published today in academia, uh, in the computer architecture community, and and see how much or little they make use of data science, uh, machine learning, and things like that. I, I think there is. Um, it's going to happen more. So, I mean, we're seeing some people trying to put these things together, but it's hard, right? If, you, if you're specializing in computer architecture and then also uh, you, you don't really have time to also learn machine learning and deep learning and the, the cutting edge part there. So, so, so from that perspective, uh, I, I think there is much, uh, there's much opportunity there to, to apply machine learning uh, deep learning, data science, to the process of uh, building processors. Right? And, and this is just in general without talking about what's happening inside of NVIDIA. Uh, right, right, but right, if you're looking right. at uh, just in general, what, what do I do today that uh, relates to computer arch or to machine learning and computer architecture, or what could I do? Uh, first of all, I mean, what we're trying to do at NVIDIA is to build architectures that are really good at running deep learning algorithms, or not only deep learning, but uh, machine learning in general. And, uh, so, so there is a clear connection point, right? Just trying to see how can we build machines that do really well for these workloads. That, that's the bread and butter, right? Uh, but uh, if I'm looking at uh, the work I'm doing, and as I said, we're doing a lot of simulations and we're producing a lot of data, and then you need to try to make sense out of that data. and uh, I mean that that's data science, right? And and uh, applying mm -hmm. machine learning algorithms to to make sense of this data, I think, is a a clear thing where we can do much better. 
This episode is brought to you by Super Data Science, our online membership platform for learning data science at any level. Yes, the platform is called Super Data Science. It's the namesake of this very podcast. In the platform, you'll discover all of our 50 plus courses, which together provide over 300 hours of content, with new courses being added on average once per month. All of that and more you get as part of your membership at Super Data Science. So don't hold off. Sign up today at www.superdatascience.com. Secure your membership and take your data science skills to the next level. Cool. So there's an opportunity. So you're mentioning earlier how in this kind of hardware design role, you're trying to have efficiencies or speed. And so you could be using machine learning algorithms to be trying to figure out what optimizes those outcomes. Yeah, you have all this data coming in. And you say, like, what features of this architected system lead to certain efficiencies or certain speeds? Mm -hmm. I I also say another interesting thing is so that that is actually something uh, that already in like early 2000, they published a paper about how to extract uh, interesting parts of benchmarks. So, so the problem here is you, you want to run a benchmark, uh, something like Geekbench, Spec CPU, something that you, you it's a suite of applications to, to see if this processor is doing well or not. But if you want to run that in simulation, uh, you can't really run the entire benchmark because uh, it just takes too long. So then you want to try to extract interesting pieces of this uh, application. And there's actually a machine learning technique that was used for that and that is used widely in the industry. And I think uh, many people who uses that don't even realize that it's machine learning uh, because they wouldn't right. even know what the, the field of machine learning was in 2001 or 2002. I mean, some people did, but people in the computer architecture community certainly didn't. Now, it's not a very advanced technique, but it's just interesting to see that yeah, some people are using machine learning without knowing it. Really cool. Then there are also other uh, things. So there have been publications uh, about how you can use machine learning and implement that in your microarchitecture itself. So uh, something that is very important for a CPU is something called branch prediction. So you have this, uh, this stream of instructions and you're going to hit different branches in the in the code. And in order to do this uh, really fast in a CPU, you need to predict the branch and, and speculate to go in the direction that you think it's going to go before you actually know in what direction it's going. Uh, oh. And uh, so that's, that's a classic problem in uh, CPU architecture. And uh, in again, in early 2000 or something, somebody... Uh, published a paper using a uh, perceptron-based branch predictor. Uh, yeah, and this is very simple if you look at it from a machine learning perspective, but it's interesting that they're borrowing some ideas there from machine learning to try to do it, uh, to do better uh, branch prediction. Um, nice, yeah, you, you mentioned there a perceptron, and we'll get into right. that uh, shortly, but it's, a, it's a, the oldest or one of the oldest uh, ways of designing a neural network that later became a deep learning network. But anyway, we can, we'll, we'll talk about that later when we start talking about your book. Uh, yeah. You were going to say something else, maybe one more example? Yeah, something? I have one more example, and that's uh, more philosophical, uh, I think. So 
I was mentioning here before that we, we tried to al evaluate these processes by running standard benchmarks like Geekbench, Spec CPU, which is just an application you want to see, does it run well or not? So, so let's say now that we're building this CPU to do better on these benchmarks, uh, and then we're trying to tweak different things to really do well on this benchmark. Well, there's a very clear risk of overfitting there. Uh, just like when we train these deep learning models, they may do really well at training data, but do they then do real do well on the test data? So the question is there, we build this CPU to try to do really well on Geekbench and Spec CPU. Does it then do well for the real world applications out there? And uh, there, I think the community could uh, benefit from applying or, or taking techniques from machine learning, right? Where you have a training data set and you have a test data set. So you can see that you're not overfitting to the applications that you're trying to do. Uh, so, yeah. so again, these are just general ways that I think there are connection points that may not be obvious between or to everybody. Nice. And, and no doubt more and more of these kinds of opportunities will emerge as the, you know, over the rest of your career, as the systems for designing these hardware systems become increasingly complex and generate more and more data, uh, there will be more and more opportunities to be applying machine learning analyses to the data and to optimize. Nice. So your book, Learning Deep Learning, was published recently. It was published last year in August, August 2021. And as I mentioned earlier on the program, published by Addison Wesley, it is a beautiful full color book. And it starts off with an introduction to the math of how the fundamental units of deep learning systems, uh, artificial uh, neural networks, or these like little neural units, these simple algorithms that can be grouped together to form a deep learning system. And so your book introduces the math of these, starting with the perceptron that we just mentioned. So right. the opening chapter talks about uh, perceptrons. And then you build on that to uh, cover tricks for training models, because as you put lots of these little simple uh, neural unit algorithms together, they can start to behave uh, erratically. They can be difficult to control. And so you talk about um, tricks for keeping them under control and having them uh, learn effectively and reliably. And then you get into specific kinds of applications. So convolutional neural networks for machine vision. You talk a lot about uh, natural language processing. So um, RNN, recurrent neural network architectures, transformer architectures, which are relatively new and have proved to be very powerful in a lot of different applications. You talk about natural language preprocessing. You talk about text generation. Uh, and you even talk about uh, time series analysis, which is has parallels to natural language processing because when we're processing natural language, whether it's written language or spoken language, it's one dimensional, it's over time. <laughs> and so uh, these same kinds of model architectures that can be useful for processing natural language can also be useful for processing other kinds of time series like um, stock prices or sales uh, predictions, that kind of thing. So this brilliant book, Magnus, why did you write it? I'm, I I have this inkling, and you, so you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I suspected maybe you you saw the enormous potential in deep learning, and uh, maybe kind of like me, you knew that if you wrote a book about it, 
<laughs> you'd understand it really, really well. You'd have to, and then you'd be able to notice more and more opportunities uh, to apply it in your job. So that's why I did it, and maybe that's related to why you wrote it too. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, there are many reasons to write a book, uh, and uh, maybe I'll start a little bit about with how I was learning deep learning. I mean, that's really where it started. So, so as I mentioned before, I uh, I was working at NVIDIA. I saw how this field was just about to explode or, or had already started to explode, right? And and I wanted to learn more about it. Um, uh, so, so the, and this is like a few years before I started writing this book, right? I, I was trying to figure out how do I best learn these things. Uh, I, I picked up, a good fellows book uh, I, I think that came out in was it 2015 something like that uh, mm-hmm. and I, I think I kind of had the perfect background skills for learning this uh, like I had I already knew programming I knew linear algebra multivariate calculus I have a background in statistics I knew about PCA clustering numerical optimizations uh, I studied economics which is about Often you, you want to optimize a utility function. You, know, you have a uh, individuals or companies are trying to optimize their utility function, and, and that's very similar to how you're trying to optimize a loss function when it comes to deep learning. Uh, I had even implemented uh, my own backpropagation implementation from scratch back in the 90s when I took a uh, class well, in artificial neural networks uh, back in school. So I, I, I feel like I had the perfect background and still it was super hard to read goodfellow's book okay <laughs> I, I, I had to struggle nothing wrong about that book it's awesome it has all the information but uh it was just struck me well how can anybody who doesn't happen to have all of these uh these background skills pick up this book and walk away from it and, and knowing this topic and, and i mean i think the yeah the truth is most people can't so so that's yeah. one piece of inspiration was I, I basically felt I can probably make this easier for people to read if if they don't have this background. So so that was one uh, one motivation was just to to make this more accessible to other people, right? Uh, the other thing, uh, well, oh, one yeah, quick thing there is that um, so. A lot of the content that I've been publishing, in fact, all of the content that I've been creating since writing my book, Deep Learning Illustrated, um, was inspired by a similar kind of thing to your Goodfellow experience. So uh-huh. um, I also was having a really hard time working through the Goodfellow book. But for me, because unlike you, I don't have as strong of a linear algebra or multivariable calculus background um, or numerical optimization, I was stuck in the very beginning of the book. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. And so, so I started uh, learning a lot and publishing a lot of content on linear algebra, on calculus, on probability theory, on computer science. And so um, I've now released over the last couple of years all of that content. If people have um, a subscription to the O'Reilly Learning Platform, uh, there's 28 hours of content that I created on those foundational subjects oh, nice. um, specifically for tackling the Goodfellow book. And then I'm now writing uh, the book version that it will, the first book will just cover the linear algebra and the calculus. So it'll be called Mathematical Foundations of Machine Learning. 
Um, and then also all of that linear algebra and calculus content is already available for free on YouTube if you don't have an O'Reilly subscription. And I'm gradually recording more and more of it um, and releasing new videos every week to get through everything that's on O'Reilly will eventually be free on YouTube too. Yeah. Um, but so I can, um, I can empathize with what you're describing, <laughs> except I got stuck even earlier than you. Um, oh, okay. And so, yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, yeah. Interesting to hear that. And um, yeah, thanks for that bit of context. And so you said that that was one of yeah, the reasons so, well, why... one of the, so, so, so I should mention there, there are three other books that really inspired me. Uh, not necessarily that I had read them all before I started writing this book, but it, it kind of, if you're looking at what I'm describing my book, you can see that there, there are probably three other books that I also uh, have gotten a lot of inspiration from. So one was uh, Cholet's book, The Deep Learning with Python, right? And which right. takes a different approach where you, you get into the programming of things, getting to build things, but I, I feel like it didn't really provide uh, all the background of how do things work. And uh, right. uh, that this it really depends on who you are, right? The, there isn't one perfect book. There's uh, You should have multiple books because people want to learn different things and people have different backgrounds, right? But uh, I felt that I really benefit from learning things ground up uh, and, and learning the theory behind it as well as how you put it together. Uh, then I was looking at Michael Nielsen's uh, online book, which uh, mm -hmm. I really loved how he started things. And you could see there how I build up my network from starting with a perceptron and then building an uh, application in Python without the deep learning framework. I mean, that, that's very much inspired by how he did things. I, I think he did a really great thing there. Uh, nice. And uh, uh, then I also uh, read uh, Deep Learning, uh, say what it's called, uh, Deep Learning from Basics to Practice or something like that, uh, by Glasner. So, so that one, hmm. it was a self-published book at the time, which then uh, I think he has come out with a uh, reworked version of it, which is now Deep Learning, a visual approach. Uh, that one is uh, super intuitive. He describes everything without diving into uh, detailed math, but at a very, uh, still a very detailed way of doing it. I felt that that's great if you want to shy away from math, but to me, I feel like having some of the actual math background, it, it doesn't hurt. And especially for people who already knows uh, some linear algebra and uh, calculus, right? That they, uh, it's good to learn those things as well. So, so that's kind of the books that inspired me. Um, I think, as you said, the reason for writing a book uh, could be, uh, you know that when you actually do that, when you go through that process, you really solidify your own knowledge. You, you can't really, you don't really know anything deeply until you can teach it to somebody. And mm -hmm. as you go through here and try to explain things, you realize, oh, I don't actually understand this fully. I have to go back. I have to read more publications on this to try to really uh, get a crisp explanation to things. Uh, so, so learning more was definitely one part of it. Uh, and then I think uh, to... I don't know, get some kind of proof that I actually know this area, right? Uh, I'd, I had done all of these studies on my own time, and how do I now prove to the world that I know this topic, right? <laughs> so, so that I don't have yeah. to feel like an imposter in this community anymore, right? Right. And 
yeah, you succeeded triumphantly in doing that. So it is an epic book, 750 pages. Uh, it is it is yeah, monstrous. That, that was actually... But a, in a good uh, way. <laughs> it, no, it, it was a very frustrating experience. Uh, this started out as I was going to make a, a brief introduction to the topic to help people get started. <laughs> uh, I, I was planning between... Uh, I, I was going to do about 10 chapters and between 100 and 150 pages. Uh, it ended wow. up being uh, 18 chapters plus a number of appendices and as you say, 700-something pages. And uh, I felt like this is not what it's supposed to be do. And it just <laughs> took forever, right? <laughs> yeah, I imagine that did take a while, but it it is, I can see how you have the inspirations from those four different books. So um, the Goodfellow book that we were, have already been talking about, it doesn't contain any code. So it is right. uh, a university textbook with math and explanations and lots of citations, but absolutely no code. Whereas your book, it has math, kind of like Goodfellow, but it also does have hands-on examples. And then Cholet, the second one you mentioned, has a lot of programming, but no math. And so again, yours, it's in between. It's like the Goldilocks sweet spot where it has uh, the key math as well as key hands-on examples. And then I love that Nielsen was also how I got started with deep learning. So super cool uh, that that was also your first book. And um, so there are elements, my book, for example, I use all the same notation as Nielsen because um, there are various ways that you could choose to notate uh, neural networks. So I use the same as his. I love that you um, that you had people understand how to program neural networks themselves without a the convenience of a high-level library. Um, that is something that, uh, yeah, very cool, inspired by Nielsen, and, and certainly something that I wasn't uh, willing to tackle when I was writing my own. So it's, it's awesome that you did that, and it does make it easy that to then build up um, to the high-level abstracted libraries later on uh, once you're comfortable with understanding how things are going on underneath the hood. Um, so very cool. I'd love to hear... Um, the inspiration and and yeah, it makes so much sense to me that uh, that your book was needed and it fills in a gap um, that none of the uh, individual uh, preceding books did. Um, so then, with that in mind, was there a particular audience that you were targeting with the book? Yeah, I was targeting myself uh, a few years before I... <laughs> I mean, I, I really wrote this book. This is the book I would have wanted to read, right? Uh, so uh, I'd say uh, engineers and uh, engineering students uh, who know some programming and know some math. That that was really what I was thinking. I, I didn't want to, like, I'm going to teach this is how you start programming or this is the basic math. Although I, I try to uh, have a little bit of recap that these are the things you need to know before you get into this chapter. And, and uh, But uh, otherwise, I'm trying to start from scratch. Right? I'm not assuming that people have machine learning skills or even know what machine learning is or ha have mm -hmm. run into deep learning before. Uh, I also decided to stay away from statistics uh, as much as possible because it's my experience is that uh, a lot of uh, computer engineers don't necessarily know a lot of statistics. They have taken one class or so and then uh, haven't really spent much time on that. And, and I didn't want to uh, have too many 
barriers of entry here, so to speak. But I felt, okay, they should know some programming and some math, but then otherwise let's start from scratch. That was my goal. And I, I, I don't know nice. if that works out or not, but we'll see. <laughs> well, I think it has so far. And so this idea that I've already kind of talked about of going from working and understanding how an individual perceptron, an individual neural unit works, coding that up yourself, and then gradually developing it into a modern neural network, and then only later getting into um, the high-level abstraction libraries like Keras and PyTorch. Um, how important do you think it is for machine learning practitioners to understand what's going on under the hood? So, you know, in your book, it's it's a prominent part. It's it's the most prominent part of the beginning of the book. Um, so, I guess you think it's important, but um, so maybe there's a quick answer to that. But then, assuming it is important, why is it important? Well, I'm not sure if it's important to everybody. Uh, I I think overall. Uh, as the need for machine learning uh, practitioners is increasing and we're getting better and better tools, I, I, I think there's going to be uh, large groups of people perhaps uh, who are using tools for specific things and, and don't necessarily need all the basics or all the details. Uh, but again, I wrote this one for what I wanted to see. I, I like to understand things from... Uh, from scratch and, and and understand what's going on under the hood, uh, and and certainly if you want to get into more advanced uh, advanced parts of this, as well as if you want to then develop new ways of using new algorithms for machine learning right, and stuff, exactly. then I think you definitely need to to know it, right? Uh, but uh, but taking this ground up approach, uh, it doesn't. It's not well suited to everybody. So, so it's again, it's really about how do you like to learn, right? There, there are some people would want to start with the uh, deep learning frameworks, get something going, and then after that, go back and see, okay, how does this actually work from scratch? Well, I felt mm -hmm. if I do it that way, I'm just I, I feel lost because I don't understand the the, the, the things from ground up. So, yeah, um, I unsatisfying. I, I think there is just there room for multiple approaches so so this is one approach yeah and that is so the the direction that i went with the kind of pedagogical approach in my book is that kind of later thing where i was like look at these really cool things that you can do all right and now that you kind of seen that let's try to understand what's going on here a little bit more um and so some people like to do that too so yeah different kinds of um approaches for different people i love the kind of um, the way that you summarized it here that, you know, understanding machine learning algorithms under the hood is key to developing your own algorithms. But I think something that you were about to start saying, uh, and didn't quite, didn't quite complete because we started shifting to different topics a little bit, but, um, I think what you were going to say is that as we have more and more machine learning practitioners and applications are more and more common, it won't necessarily need to be the case that everyone using machine learning needs to understand what's going on under the hood. Right. I, I definitely think so. I mean, I, I think we need to get it to a point where we can enable more people to use machine learning without knowing all the details, because it's just not realistic that everybody will learn things from scratch. And, and that's going back to what I said before. So if you have a person doing a PhD in computer architecture, 
can't really expect that them they should at the same time become experts on machine learning to then be able to apply the two together, right? It would be very nice to be able to then that they can just know a little bit about machine learning to apply it on computer architecture rather than having to be specialized in two things to be able to uh, uh, make use of, of these new techniques. Um, going back to, uh, I'm, I'm shifting topic back to what we're talking about here, to your book here as well. I, I find it interesting if you look at, uh, also I think this has to do with who you are targeting or who you are as an author, right? I, I really liked Nielsen's example because he starts using a perceptron to show that it can implement the and uh, and an or gates kind of, which is uh, Boolean logic. And as coming from a computer electrical engineering background, mm -hmm. that was just, mm -hmm. oh, this is obvious to me, right? <laughs> uh, while your book, uh, you have a background in neuroscience, I think, right? And, and you instead you start right. with, this is kind of the, biological vision system and uh, so, so that's kind of how you think about this is how deep learning right. fits into the world well i feel like okay right. this you can use this for boolean logic it's kind of and, and that again i think just shows that there isn't one size fits all right? It, right this this topic of machine learning and deep learning is assuming so many other surrounding uh Areas that you that you already have this other experience and, and knowledge, uh, so depending on what background knowledge you have, I think you, you need a different book. Yeah. yeah, we always gravitate towards what we already know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if everything feels easier, um, and cool. Uh, very nice of you to make that comparison. Um, so speaking of biology, biology influencing the way that machine learning algorithms work. So in the way that, yeah, in my book, I wherever I could, I would um, cite the kind of biological, the often neuroscientific, the brain science inspiration behind um, why we, we set up a neural network a certain way or why a deep learning model works a certain way. Something that you cover in your book that's also inspired by biology is evolutionary algorithms. So in your neural architecture search chapter, um, you talk about these evolutionary algorithms, and so they are inspired by the way that biological systems uh, mutate and evolve in the real world. Um, and it's a lesser known optimization option in computing relative to other search approaches like grid or random searches. So um, can you explain to us what evolutionary computation is? And then as a follow-up, um, given the ever-increasing complexity of models and data size, do you think algorithms inspired by evolution will become more common? Sure. Maybe I can take a little detour here first. Uh, Please. If you don't mind. Yeah, so uh, evolutionary computation uh, is a field where uh, with algorithms that are inspired by evolution. Right? And uh, it's something I, I studied uh, when I did my master's. Uh, so I, I mentioned before I had implemented an artificial neural network uh, in the 90s. I also was looking at genetic uh, programming and evolutionary algorithms, uh, which kind of is a, a part of the artificial intelligence uh, field as well, I'd, I'd say. And uh, I, I was considering at that time, maybe I should go into this field for real. Uh, but I also had this... Uh, 
that background in more electrical engineering, used to sit and solder and, and build my own stuff. And I felt that, well, this AI thing seems really cool and everything, but I, I want to build chips. Uh, that's kind of what I had started uh, studying for. I, I want to build these chips and I want to do kind of real processors, right? Uh, that, that, that was what, what I really wanted to do. So, so I, I decided on doing the computer architecture uh, direction instead, and and then uh, get into chip design. Uh, but then I had this awesome strike of good luck, I guess, like coming back to NVIDIA and working on uh, on processor design, and then artificial intelligence is happening right there, and I can now like get a second chance to do to work on, on both of these things. Right? So, cool. so so that's kind of just the the background there. So. Uh, so I had this uh, some knowledge in evolutionary computation, uh, and I wanted to write a little bit about uh, neural architecture search. Uh, so what you referred to there is in the, uh, I think the second, the last second to last chapter where I'm just trying to uh, give a little bit of an idea of other things that I haven't described in detail in the book. That is kind of emerging parts, uh, and the the neural architecture search is about having. Uh, algorithms that automatically designs your neural networks instead of uh, you building them yourself. Uh, so then uh, I wanted to give some examples of how that can be done. And uh, I agree, using evolutionary computation for that might not be the, uh, the most straightforward way, but it, it's a search algorithm. This is a search problem. And I felt that that would be kind of an exciting way of uh, getting the, giving the reader a flavor of different ways of doing things and also it, it it kind of seems so cool to you have a network that is inspired by bio, biological neurons and now we're going to use a uh, algorithm that is uh, inspired by biological evolution to come up with how to connect these neurons it, it kind of makes it sounds more like science fiction uh that again though it's a little bit controversial right uh, you mentioned that you wanted to do a lot of uh draw parallels between biological uh, systems as well as uh, these artificial networks. Uh, and I know that there's uh, a lot of researchers feel that we, we shouldn't take that too far because in reality, these networks aren't as advanced as biological systems. Uh, I don't know, do you have oh, any yeah. thoughts on that? Uh, you, yeah, you, great you question. You know this better than me, right? So, <laughs> um, So... You know, it's pretty infrequent that I get asked questions on the show, but I'd love it. I'm glad that you did. Um, so the it I, I try to be as careful as I can to use the word inspiration wherever uh -huh. I can. While, while modern neural networks, both the individual neural units being inspired by biological uh, neurons, as well as in some systems, particularly convolutional neural networks, these are inspired by the way that our visual system works. It is a very loose inspiration. And biological neurons and biological neural networks are so vastly more complex. There is a lot more subtlety in what all of the units do. And there's a lot more subtlety in the way that they interact with each other. So. Biological neurons, for example, aren't as simple as just being connected to each other. Um, there are 
these support cells in our nervous system that surround and assist the brain cells that also play a role in what our brain is able to do and the way that it's able to learn. And I'm not aware of any artificial systems that have even begun to try to capture that. So there are, I'm sure there are orders of magnitude probably of complexity in biological neural networks that we haven't begun to tap into um, despite these inspirations on kind of the broad strokes mm -hmm. of how the biological systems work. And so that brings me to an interesting point, which is that some people, and we had an episode not too long ago. So in episode number 565 with Jeremy Harris, Jeremy and I get into a little bit of a debate about when we might have artificial general intelligence. And Jeremy made the point that the way that our large natural language models are growing exponentially larger every couple of years, so our, our largest natural language processing models, so like GPT-3 was a famous example a couple of years ago, these models get 10 times bigger every couple of years. And so by that logic, Jeremy was saying, well, so then in 10 years or so, we will have these large neural networks that have more parameters than we have neurons in our brain. And yeah, so I think that this comparison of how many parameters you have in a artificial neural network and the number of neurons you have in a biological brain, I, I think that there's a false equivalency there. I, I think that if we, just because we managed to get the numbers to match up <laughs> or we exceed the number, you know, we can say, oh, this artificial neural network has 10 times the number of parameters as uh, there are neurons in a biological brain. That is, yeah, it's, it's not the same thing at all because every one of the biological brain cells has many connections and there are these direct electrical connections that we're making via the action potentials that are like kind of explicit. But then as, as I was alluding to earlier, there are lots of other ways that this system is interacting that makes it more complex. And on top of that, our brain has lots of different structural parts that be, that have different characteristics. So, you know, parts of your cerebral cortex are somewhat replaceable um, or consistent over parts of your cerebral cortex, so the, the outermost part of your brain. And so there's a lot of plasticity there where if one part gets damaged, another part can step in. But there are lots of other parts of your brain that are not the same. <laughs> you know, you can't have brain damage in, your, in the outer part of your brain and have um, any random part of your neural structure step in and help. There are lots of different substructures in your brain that specialize to different kinds of tasks. And so it's, it's not just a matter of having enough um, parameters, having enough, having enough neurons represented in the system or having enough connections between neurons represented in the system. It's also about a much more complicated interaction between all of the information flows. And maybe as a computer architect, that's probably something, you know, that maybe that's probably the way that you think about the brain a bit, Magnus, is that, you know, you don't like, 
just as in a computer system, we have a CPU for some kinds of tasks. We have a GPU for other kinds of tasks. The human brain <laughs> has dozens, maybe hundreds of different kinds of areas that specialize in different kinds of processing. And they're not fungible between each other. It's not just like having more brain cells is going to fix the problem. It's the, the specific way that that, that substructure is configured matters to allow our brain to have the complex cognitive capacities that it has. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And in so if you look at computer chips, we tend to talk about, or at least the press tend to talk about the number of transistors and how that is increasing every year. But the truth is that it's not just about how the number of transistors on a chip increases. It's also about how we connect them together and, and the, the architecture and right. innovation there. And I think it's the same thing with the, uh, these neural networks is that uh, we have seen that, right? That different network architectures are good at different things. Uh, and if we had just continued doing fully connected networks, uh, we wouldn't be able to do what we can do today. Uh, we needed this innovation in the types of architectures like convolutional neural networks, transformer architecture, and so on. And and I'm sure there's... Mm -hmm. Plenty of things to be figured out there as well to be able to use the neurons efficiently and to, to use them for different tasks. Right. Well, you and I are on the same page. <laughs> of course we are. I don't, I don't, I don't think we're going to have AGI anytime very soon. I, maybe in our lifetimes, maybe. But the number of Who innovations knows? that need to happen between now and then are, there's many, many innovations um, but I, I, I think I'd say that actually in, in the uh, section in the book we talked about, we're applying uh, evolutionary computation to figure out the, the network structure here, right? That uh, if you read this from a science fiction perspective, it, it, it does sound like science fiction that we now have this little life form that is evolving in some sense. But in right. reality, it's it's a three hundred line Python program, right? It, 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 right? It's not intelligence, but uh, it can do some pretty cool stuff. So, so that's where we are today, and let's see where we go in the future, I guess. Nice. So, speaking of different architectures uh, and <laughs> the evolution of these architectures over time, a few years ago, when I was writing my book, which you know is only a few years old now. People, everyone was doing natural language processing with recurrent neural networks. So yep. you had these simple vanilla RNNs or what we thought were kind of really fancy RNNs, long short-term memory units, LSTMs. And so in my book, we use RNNs, LSTMs, and convolutional neural networks to analyze natural language data, process natural language data. And subsequently, these transformer architectures have evolved. <laughs> um, through discourse between humans, not through uh, um, some evolutionary algorithm. But um, so I love that your book has a focus on these transformer architectures that'll be valuable for a lot of our listeners. Do you think that there are still reasons why we might want to use RNNs instead of transformers for NLP? Say. So very good question. I mean, I, I spend a fair amount of time on both RNNs, LSTM, and I have an appendix on the GRU, the, the gated recurrent unit. So uh, definitely from a, I, I felt that I really wanted to have it there as a part of building up towards the transformer, right? Uh, 
and and I I I would struggle with coming up with how can I just describe the transformer without describing how we got there with the encoder decoder networks and uh, attention and, and these things and there's a lot of buzzwords here now but uh, the, the transformer is pretty complex um, so from a understanding perspective that's how it made sense to me to describe it uh, which meant that I definitely needed to go through the details of RNNs and LSTM uh, and I would imagine that they will continue to have a uh, place where that we will continue using them. I mean, I people are using them, right? Uh, transformers have been shown to be good at other things than uh, NLP as well, computer vision, now vision mm -hmm. transformers. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that we don't need convolutional neural networks either? I mean, some people would say yeah. that we really just need the transformer and, and then... Let's build on that. Uh, and maybe that's where we're going, or maybe we're going to, maybe a few years from now, we have some other architecture that has right. been, uh, we have arrived at from having the transformer as a stepping stone. I, I really don't know. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think that they're kind of these uh, building blocks uh, that basic building blocks, that you, you still need to know them. Like you need to know a convolution, you need probably need to know our recurrent network works in order to then come up with even greater architectures. So maybe they won't be used uh, just as is because just like who uses just a single perceptron today? Uh, not that many right. people, right? Uh, right? But they will be used as building blocks in other architectures and, and uh, mechanisms from them, I think. That makes a lot of sense. And something that is probably obvious to you, but we might as well state is that one of the advantages afforded by CNNs or RNNs relative to transformers is that, for the most part, you know, speaking in broad strokes, they are a lot less computationally complex. So they require less compute power, compute time, compute money to train and implement. And for a lot of real-world applications, we don't need the most accurate or the most nuanced results for a lot of machine learning applications, we'd actually prefer something to be fast and cheap and maybe a little bit less accurate. And that you can understand it easier too, right? You, you don't necessarily need to use deep learning either, right? There are traditional machine learning totally. techniques and you should always consider them as well because uh, it's also the part of ex explaining how the system works. And so, yeah, I, I think you should learn a lot of different techniques and then use the right tool for the, the right task, right? Yeah. And so on that note, this note of explainability, that ties into ideas of ethical AI. And you have a section on ethical AI in your book. So why, why is that important? Why not just, why not just tell us how to do everything? <laughs> why I, is it important to talk about the ethics as well? Yeah, so, so the way I put it in the book, right? Uh, I, I even in the introduction I have a question about is deep learning dangerous and and you talked about artificial general intelligence and and often those are the kind of scenarios that uh, have gotten a lot of attention that what's going to happen in the future when the machines take over and and that's certainly something to worry about uh, if and when that happens but I think we already have a problem today with how. 
these algorithms can cause harm uh, in society. And, and that's really what ethical AI is about. Uh, to ensure that as we develop and build these systems, that we do it in a responsible way uh, that doesn't cause harm. And, and I think, uh, at, at least for myself, that was a blind spot for a long time. Uh, like I, You pick up a uh, introductory book on the topic and, and they don't really talk about these things. And I realized that, well, that's not good. So I, I should at least try to open the eyes to people a little bit, right? So that they, they know that this is, this is important. Uh, and uh, there's been a lot of examples where, uh, where the systems aren't, well, the, the people who designed the systems might not have thought through these things, or it might be that uh, they are used for things that they shouldn't be used for. So the prime example, right? You have a facial recognition system, maybe used by law enforcement, uh, and uh, it was uh, developed with uh, photographs of people of a certain ethnicity, for example, and it claimed to be 99% accurate and stuff. And then you uh, mm -hmm. deploy it out in the wild and you have a 60% accuracy for uh, uh, other groups of people. And, and that's just mm -hmm. not acceptable. Yep. Yep, agreed. I think that in the last few years, rightly so, and belatedly, it has become mainstream within data science, within data modeling, to be thoughtful about the real-world applications. I think that prior to a few years ago, it was standard to not reflect on this, like you say, in books that come out or papers that come out. And I think that a minority of books in the future will ignore these considerations entirely. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of us come from technical backgrounds. And so we are, we're aware, if we understand how these algorithms work under the hood, we know that it's, it is linear algebra and calculus and what could be biased about math. But of course, the training data that we use to train our models is almost always um, it, it's data that's produ kind of data yeah. produced by humans often, right? So that it contains a yeah. lot of human biases. And, uh, yeah. So yeah. So I, I also um, found it great. It's very interesting when I was uh, doing the research to write on those topics, right? That I had to find the different publications, and it has been great work done in this field, uh, uh, primarily by women, actually, uh, which is interesting uh, because uh, it's not that uh, many women in uh, in data science i think or uh, probably if you if you look at it uh, they're probably a minority uh, but and likely they have seen the uh, the harm being caused and that that has mm -hmm. made them pay attention uh, more perhaps than males uh, i don't know yeah. it's just interesting He's, so yeah these algorithms have historically been developed by, um, by yeah, by white men, by uh, the historically dominant uh, group, and uh, so yeah, we're just not. I mean, for people who aren't uh, watching the video version, both Magnus and I happen to be white men. Yep, and uh, uh, yeah, we. Yeah, we, we, we enjoy 
privileges and opportunities that uh, others might not get as easily. And, uh, and part of that probably also leads us as a group to not be thoughtful about ways that the algorithms that we develop are impacting all of the users. And um, yeah, so we have lots of examples in hardware examples, software examples where tools are designed for white men by white men. Like yep. it's, it's everywhere, like tools, uh, seats on public transport um, and machine learning algorithms. They're, it's like, as you design these things, instead of putting together a, you know, putting the effort in to find a set of users that represents the variety of users that you're going to have in the real world, you just look around the lab or whatever and say, all right, I need three people. <laughs> and all of those three people are white men. And then all these different devices end up being, um, yeah. Well and I mean, it, it, it's, not, it's often not consciously, right? You're looking at what you yeah, have available yeah, yeah. And, and getting data isn't that easy. So you're looking at data around you and uh, yeah. getting a representative set of data for the entire world is hard. But uh, you need to put in that effort because otherwise you're not going to... Yeah build good systems yeah it's worth the investment and uh the most valuable firm on the planet apple uh has been longer than uh, its big tech competitors um yeah had a had a focus on this kind of so when apple develops a facial recognition system they were putting even years ago putting the effort into um, to pay to bring in models with a wide variety of faces that represented the faces that they would need their device to work. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, um, yeah, some a competitor of theirs might develop their facial recognition recognition system based on images that, that they just pull from the internet, which are not as balanced. And um, anyway, so yeah, so um, yeah, I'm glad that you yeah, that you brought this up in your book and. Um, yeah, it's nice to, to have a conversation about it. And everybody out there should be should be thinking about how your algorithm is going to impact people in the real world and what else you can be doing to ensure that the that the outputs. Uh, so if your algorithm uh, is making a difference in people's lives in some way, which probably most algorithms are, if there's some way for you to test whether uh, different demographic groups are equally uh, affected by the algorithm, you should you should try to do that. Um, and yeah, so yeah, great chapter of the book. And then another, another piece of your book that I thought was really cool and that isn't very common to see in books is an appendix with extensive and beautifully illustrated cheat sheets. <laughs> so we don't often see these cheat sheets in machine learning books. Um, what was your thinking behind including them? Well, I can't really take credit for it. It was actually one of my reviewers, uh, one of my uh, oh. in-house reviewers. So I uh, early on got in touch with uh, uh, Eric Haynes. So he, he has written a book about uh, real-time rendering, about computer graphics. It's kind of the, the Bible in that field. And uh, he works for NVIDIA. And uh, he gracelessly uh, said that he would uh, review this book as a target reviewer like target group reviewer because he did not know deep learning and he wanted to learn about it. So he mm -hmm. uh, was tremendously helpful in making this book as good as it is because he knew everything about writing books and, and I had never written a book before, right? And, and he said, 
he, he came with a lot of suggestions, which cost me more work and extra work yeah. to. We need more pages. And, and he said, so, so shouldn't you also have some cheat sheets in the end? And I was like, ah, of course I should. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think it made it much better. I mean, it, it's uh, it's great to have these visual uh, summaries of things, and you can and go back and, and you can look at this. Do I? Do I know what this refers to? Okay, now then I probably should go back and read that chapter. So, so I think it was a great addition, even though it uh, added more work on my side. So, so that's where they are coming from. Nice, yeah. And, and they are also, you can download them as PDF uh, on the book website, actually, even if you haven't bought the book. So, so those are publicly available. Oh, nice. There you go. We'll uh, try to include a link to those in the show notes. Um, all right, so... You have all this experience going back decades to machine learning models, uh, evolutionary algorithm models, and also decades of experience as a computer hardware architect. So what do you what do you think of yourself as first? Do you think of yourself as a data scientist first or as a computer architect first? It, definitely a computer architect, actually. So I, I should be a little bit careful with I I don't view myself as having decades of experience in machine learning. I, I, I had some some you, knowledge there back in the 90s. Right, so I, nice, took, nice. I took a long right, time right, right. and came back, right? So, right, uh, right, right. Uh, so, so no, I, I'm definitely more of a computer architect than uh, data scientist or, or machine learning uh, expert. But uh, I'm, I'm intrigued by both of them. And what I really think is that... Uh, if you combine them, or as I said before, there's a lot of connection points there, and I think that's very powerful. Um, I, I think uh, a lot of people, uh, or I, I get the impression when I listen to episodes on your podcast that people are looking at, how can I transition from my current role into becoming a data scientist, or so I can transition into machine learning? And I think that maybe that's the wrong way of looking at it, uh, because I think uh, if they already have a lot of knowledge in one field, what they should look at is how can I bring in data science, machine learning into this field? Because then I think they have a lot more to offer in their current field, right? Because then they can build on the expertise they already have and then add on top of that instead of trying to just abandon what they knew and then now be really good at uh, machine learning. Uh, because after all, machine learning is a tool, right? And, and not all of us can be focusing on improving the algorithms uh, for machine learning. Uh, I, I think a lot of the work will be to apply those existing algorithms or the latest, greatest algorithms to other uh, fields. But you can't do that unless you really know the field. And uh, the, the data scientists doesn't necessarily know that field. So so I think uh, I would encourage people to, to not view it as I'm going to jump ship and, and do something else, but instead see how can I do these things to, two things together. Nice. That is a great summary point that I don't emphasize enough on the show. And hopefully you'll, you'll hear me saying that more on the show going forward is that, yeah, you're right. We do often kind of frame this as how can I become a data scientist, but why not just keep doing what you're doing and integrate some machine learning or some statistics or some analytics or some data visualization, some elements of data science into what you're doing and augmenting it 
uh, yeah, you don't need to think about jumping into a whole new industry. Um, and yeah, as Magnus has no doubt found, it's that kind of thinking is a bridging of your field with data science um, that could be a truly powerful combination. All right, so um, as a super data science listener, Magnus, um, another another topic that you've noticed we have recur on the show is imposter syndrome. And in fact, I did a I did a five minute Friday on it specifically, episode number five hundred two. If uh, people are interested in uh, hearing about imposter syndrome and kind of my based on my research, um, how you can overcome it, but uh, Magnus, do you want to tell us what imposter syndrome is and any tips that you have for overcoming it? Sure. So imposter syndrome is when you, as, as far as I understand it, when, when you don't feel that you uh, actually know the topic you're working on or kind of that you're uh, pretending perhaps to be somebody that you're not uh, in, in this field. Um, and I, I think it's probably very common in a new field like this, right? Because uh, most of us who try to work on this don't have a formal education in deep learning. I mean, the, the, the people who have th has that are probably younger, right? Because how, how could I possibly have a uh, college degree in deep learning if it didn't exist when I went to college? Well, I would have to go back to college now, perhaps, and, and uh, most people don't, right? So we we try to pick up these skills and feel that we kind of know this, we, we know the, the topic, but we don't have this uh, sense of, yeah, I formally know the topic. I, I kind of just know this and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And can I really claim that I'm an expert? Uh, and um, so, so I think that applies to, to many people who are a little bit older who try to work in this area. Uh, and uh, I think, what to do is really just, well, uh, if you know your stuff, you're not an imposter. So make sure that you know your stuff and uh, get some experience. Uh, as I said, I, I wrote a book because then I felt I'm going to learn a lot from it. And that's going to give me some kind of stamp of approval that I actually know this. And then uh, given presentations, now I'm on this podcast. So, so maybe after that, maybe I won't feel like an imposter any, anymore. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, this is the real trick. If you've been on the Super Data Science podcast, then you're definitely not an imposter. Yeah, no, uh, it's, uh, I mean it, it. It's scary, right? You, you do something that you feel uncomfortable with. That that's how you expand your your comfort level in that, and and that's how you're learning things. And then after a while, you don't feel like an imposter anymore. It's just, I mean, it's like just a completely different experience. When I had kids, right uh, in the beginning. Am I a dad now? Like I don't know how to be a dad, but then now, right. twelve years into this experience, I, I kind of identify myself as a dad much more than I did eleven years ago. So you just do your thing, and then over time, you 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 grow into your role. That's really what it's about, I think. Cool. Um, so I'm curious, uh, since you are such a regular Super Data Science listener noticing things like imposter syndrome coming up on a lot of guest episodes. Um, are there any particular other topics that have stuck with you that have resonated with you from the past? Uh, well, there's a lot of them. Uh, I'll, I'll just pick, <laughs> pick one, I guess. Uh, so I think it was um, episode 
503 with Peter Abel. Is it Abel or Abel? Uh, uh, Peter Abel. Peter Abel, yeah. yeah. And and I, this wasn't even the, the main topic of, of that episode, but uh, I think uh, you had asked him about... Uh, he he was starting multiple efforts uh, at once or, or doing a lot of things and, and you asked him how, how he could do that and i think mm-hmm. there are two things there with one was well the more other things you already know uh, the easier it is to do something new because you can build on top of things and i th- i think that's something i feel all the time is that the more the more you learn the easier it is to learn new things but but then the other thing is to uh, that you just have to kind of jump into it and get started and and then figure out how to do it like there will never be a perfect time for doing a specific thing but if you get into something that's interesting you start working on that and, and then you'll figure out how to make it happen and and i think that was with this book for example right i, I didn't have time to write a book no, nobody has time to write a book but uh, <laughs> you start right. and then you figure out how to make time for it and uh, yeah Beautiful. Yeah, that is such a wonderful episode. I mean, Peter Beal, certainly one of the most extraordinary guests. I mean, we have a lot of amazing guests on the show, uh, you, know, you being a great example of that. But uh, yeah, Peter Beal, such an extraordinary scientist and entrepreneur. Amazing that he also then finds the time to come on a show. Um, and yeah, and that was kind of one of his main points was, and I completely forgot about that. I hadn't thought about it very much since, unlike you. Uh, but yeah, that this idea of the more that you start new things, the, the easier it becomes. And there's also kind of tying into your point, Magnus, about um, applying data scientists to your industry in the same way um, there's there's opportunities with the things that you choose to do with your life. So, you know, you wrote a book on deep learning, which is relevant to your work. And so it helps your work and your work helps the book. And in the same way, a lot of Peter Abiel's, you know, Peter Abiel's research very directly impacts what he can do as an entrepreneur. And then probably the problems that he encounters when he's trying to apply what he's learned uh, in the lab in industry, then he can bring that back to the lab. And so there's this kind of this these synergies, as much as that's like a cringy <laughs> management consultancy word. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you can be looking for opportunities. Yeah, I, I mean, I made I made the same decision. Like, I, I thought it would be nice to write a book, but it makes the most sense for me to write a book <laughs> about something related to what I do for work. Uh, and same thing with the podcast. And so it kind of, um, so yeah, so I guess that's something that listeners can be thinking about too is, you know, when you're thinking about ways that you can make an impact, maybe not looking to make that impact in a way that is wholly unrelated to things you already have experience with, but leveraging the experiences you already have. Right. Awesome, Magnus. Well, we're reaching near the end of the program here. We've already been, we've already gone overtime on our recording slot. Thank you so much for doing that. Magnus and I are recording on a Sunday. And so thank you so much for taking time out of your Sunday um, to record this long and content rich episode. I've really enjoyed it. But uh, to start wrapping up, do you have a, a as I said, right? You, you commit to something and then you make time for it, right? Even if it's on a Sunday. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so book recommendation, Magnus? Book recommendation, yes. So I'm reading, or well, I, I finished reading this one. It's called A Radical Enterprise. 
by Matt mm. Parker. So I should be just to be transparent here. It's a friend of mine. So, uh, but it, it's a great book. Uh, it's about uh, how to build organizations that uh, are radically collaborative. So it's oh. trying to figure out how to structure companies that, uh, in a way that people feel uh, really uh, committed to doing their best and that they can have fun doing their work rather than having the more uh, traditional management uh, structure in place, I suppose. So he gives a number of examples of companies that have done that and tries to figure out what are the different uh, mechanisms in place here. What, what, what are the things that you need to do in your organization to make it a radically uh, collaborative company? Uh, so, so that's interesting. Cool. Um, I, now, it's in, in some sense, I guess it's uh, trying to get rid of of my role as a director because uh, I think it's more about uh, a lot about having flat organizations and uh, uh, where it's uh, more organic how people are self-managing and self-collaborating. Um, so, uh, no, it, it, it's interesting. Cool. Um, that does definitely sound like an interesting recommendation. Um, so we'll be sure to include a link to that in the show notes. And then we'd also like to include in the show notes ways for people to follow you, Magnus. Um, clearly, you are yeah, a deeply intelligent person. I, yeah, I, I've really enjoyed the depth that we've been able to get into on a lot of different topics today. And so if a listener feels the same way, what can they do to get more? Well, I am on LinkedIn, so they can connect with me there. That, that's probably the nice. easiest way to get hold of me. So just send Perfect. a request and then send me a chat message if you want to talk. Nice. All right, Magnus. Thank you so much for making the time on this Sunday uh, to hang out with me and record this great episode. Thank you so much. And maybe we can check in in the future with you and see how things have been going. Definitely. Thanks for having me. It's incredible how deeply knowledgeable Magnus is across computer hardware, software, and mathematics. I thoroughly enjoyed filming this episode with him and was left in awe of him, frankly. In today's episode, Magnus filled us in on how software is used to design and simulate the performance of physical hardware systems like microchips and CPUs. He talked about how hardware speed and efficiency can be optimized with machine learning. He talked about how understanding machine learning under the hood is key to developing your own algorithms, but is not necessarily necessary for everyone who makes use of machine learning algorithms. He also talked about how evolutionary algorithms could potentially optimize neural network model architectures and how there will continue to be a place for deep learning architectures like CNNs and RNNs because they're faster, cheaper, and easier to explain than the currently in vogue transformer models. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Magnus' social media profiles, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com slash 575. That's superdatascience.com slash 575. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on the Super Data Science YouTube channel. I also encourage you to let me know your thoughts on this episode directly by adding me on LinkedIn or Twitter and then tagging me in a post about it. Your feedback is invaluable for helping us shape future episodes of the program. Thanks to my colleagues at Nebula, 
for supporting me while I create content like this Super Duty Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Yvonne Seabird, Mario Pombo, Serge Massis, Sylvia Ogveng, and Kirill Aramenko on the Super Data Science team for managing, editing, researching, summarizing, and producing another super informative episode for us today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon. Thank you.